Hey there, Jay here at the top of the show. Just to give you a quick content warning, uh, there is some brief mention of implied sexual assault in a certain context in this episode. Uh, If that's something you don't want to hear, now you know. Thanks. You're a ghost. You're a ghost that won't admit he's a ghost. You're still trying to touch, trying to feel, trying to keep a grasp on everything that you lost when you faded away. Everyone else around you knows you already have, and you're the only one who won't accept it. I know uh, saying uh, Georgie's last line to the bad guy of this movie is a weird way to start things out, but fuck, Kirsten. Watching it again, that's really where I'm at. Uh, We're here to talk about The Phantom and the Wren. How you doing, Kirsten? I'm okay. I I feel like I'm having a knife fight at the bottom of the exhaustion spiral, but goddamn, I am here. I am ready to talk about this movie. Honestly, rewatching this movie and and thinking about it and thinking about talking about it with you has really gotten me through this week. How are you? Uh, pretty good. I got I I you're you're on an exhaustion spiral on 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 episode or episode two, movie one. I I understand, and I think so. Like the reason I I brought that quote in as the way to start things off here is it is so. <laughs> This movie, The Phantom and the Wren, kicks off this whole series. It's exciting. It's great. People loved it. It gripped them into an eight-movie saga that spanned a lot of years. Watching it is just fucking harrowing. <laughs> and to think about, like, it, it is emotionally exhausting in a way that yeah. leaves me satisfied, but also, like, I need a nap. And so I think I'm here with you. Yeah, and... You know, I, I've said I said this I think in our first episode, and I will say it again. This is I think the movie in the series I come back to the most. Sure, yeah. Uh, it's not my favorite, but it is the one I've watched the most times, and not just because it's the one they play on TV all the time. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it is. Um, it can be a tough sit, man, <laughs> especially when we're when you're looking at it with more analytical goggles. It's it can be, it can be rough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean. Yeah, it's a movie that really demands your attention because it starts out, I don't know, in a way innocently, but in a way not like, oh, God, can I just can I just interrupt you? Can I just talk about this opening scene? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, go go ahead and set the table here. Okay, okay. It's just, it's dark and it's, it's just a blank screen. And then you get those crunching gravel footsteps. And just like, just mm-hmm. like an awkwardly long ten seconds of that, then profile like side view of a, of a of a gravel street, and then someone walks past the camera, and you f- it, there's there's no background music, there's no nothing, and then it, and then the camera stops, and so does this person, and you just see Georgie standing there, facing the right side of the screen, and it's a stop and it's a pause as he looks. Looks off into the distance in profile. There's that that almost like cliche Midwestern American fields in the background. There's a beat where he stares and then he keeps going and those gravel footsteps again and then black and then and then you just hear you hear the footsteps again and then the movie starts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what a what a gravitas to start off with. Uh, it's it's such a it's such a weird mix of mundane and melodramatic to introduce this character to us with 
Yeah, it's it's a lot of gravity, like you said, to introduce him to us with, because that is a kind of delivery I would expect out of, let's say, a later movie in a series like this. One where maybe we're coming back to a main character who's older, who, you know, you're seeing way uh-huh. older. Like, I don't know why, right? I don't know why, why right now this is coming to my mind, but have you seen Logan? The 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 X Men movie about old Wolverine. I have, I have seen Logan. I have seen that, Logan. Good movie. That is that is a kind of shot that they could have done with bringing him into frame in the first time. You know, where it's the weight of just seeing this character yeah. and his face. And in that kind of case, you're seeing him and knowing, oh, this is the Hugh Jackman we've been seeing since I don't know 2002 or whatever. But he <laughs> looks long. he looks so just the world has run through him. Now, Georgie doesn't really look quite like that in the fir- in this first one. Not in a sense of age, but like, no, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I know. I think the real subtlety of this scene is in um, sort of uh, Georgie's face and in the fact that like, he, it's this very strange grave setup, but he doesn't look unhappy yet. No, not uh, at all. No, yeah, he's, right. He's very much like, like there's this this kind of weird neutral smile thing going on and immediately you're like, it's not like you know in in Logan where you're like oh this guy's been through the ringer but it is like an mm-hmm. oh what the fuck is this guy's deal <laughs> right exactly so we so th- this this first movie you have Georgie and Paul Harris who is this villain with a you know I, I I've always thought he has a like distinctively generic name and that's definitely a theme of the movie the uh, the whole quote I opened us with there is very much about that character's theme of, you know, sort of being someone who's faded away, but won't admit that he has and doesn't want to let that be the case and starts committing acts of violence as almost a desperate cry as, as if, as, as if it's this desperate cry of I'm still here. And, uh, you know, Georgie is just this person who one of those acts of violence touches it's 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 yeah. you know it, it it's it touches a family member of his and so he goes off to find the person who's done it yeah and it, it's it's weird because it's almost it's almost a superhero origin story uh sure however these are definitely not in any uh sense of the word superhero movies um certainly and, not uh, i i don't think you know, you could categorize Georgie as a as a superhero at all. There isn't, you know, there's no MBI index to get. No, he's he's a hero to the people he protects and the people uh-huh. he cares about, uh-huh. and that too is challenged. You know, any number of times, as of yeah. course it's going to be over this long a saga. And and there, I don't know. The other reason I, I brought up his his antagonist, why, why I bring up Paul, is that I think. We'll get to some parallels involving that and Georgie with the last movie way later. But in this one, yeah, it's very much him being set up as not an everyone hero. You know, he's not rising up to guard the world against evil. He's just so like, like his sister is murdered. That is that is our impetus. What we're jumping ahead to where that happens, because it's almost 30 minutes in where that actually happens. This first you know, the first chunk of the movie is very quiet, very I guess quietly paced. I was trying to think of another way to say the word. Quiet. I, um, and I mean, that's the, the this movie is is uh, like uh, it's like ninety five minutes, right? This is not a long movie. Yeah. This no, this not is at like all. this is a so that first 
30 minutes is this weird slow build of atmosphere and this um, very odd Midwestern town that, mm-hmm. and th- I do think this is important. This is not where Georgie is from. This is where her no. sister is, but this is not where he grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, he's, they are visiting her sort of visiting. I mean, it, something I, I really enjoy is that if you're watching it for the first time, it kind of takes you a while to figure out whether he is visiting her or has accidentally run into her. There's just something yeah. about the, the body language between both of them where you don't really know if either of them expected to be interacting. Yeah. And then, of course, it winds up being their final interaction. Which is sad. But um, that that first 30 minutes is is... It, it's a weird pacing choice. Um, mm-hmm. This is probably the most, uh, one of the least um, normally paced movies in this series. Mm-hmm. Like, Definitely, this yeah, yeah. Abnormal pacing. That was the word I was looking for. I was looking for the word abnormal and I could not think of it for the fucking life of me. <laughs> I was sitting here like, what is that word that means not normal? <laughs> if only there was a prefix I could attach to the word normal to make that happen. Yeah, I got there. Oh, God. But yeah, I, I, so you have that opening 30 minutes and God, so like, so, so you mentioned the town and we were talking in that first episode about place and how really good living locations are something that this director is so good at from the get go. And, and like Laz Patillo is really good at making you almost feel like you've been in a place, but also yeah. making you feel like what you're seeing is just a sort of dreamlike, not, not dreamlike as in idyllic, but more dreamlike as in a little surreal. bit detached from reality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's everywhere could be a town. This is reductive, but everywhere could almost be a town in somewhere like near somewhere like twin peaks, you know, where it's just, it's a it's a it's a event horizon not an event right it, it is just a abnormality of a place that kind of subsists off its own abnormality that is the kind sure. of space he builds i will be honest i've never seen twin peaks but that makes a lot of sense um it, it's it's very different stylistically in terms of how he does it versus how the directors and creators of twin peaks do it but i mean it's it's a similar effect to on the viewer i think yeah. um there's a million other examples that are all escaping me at the moment. I, I think that that this first half hour where he this just awkwardly interacts with his sister and this is this is kind of my favorite. It's not favorite little detail of this movie, um, which is that we never see how Georgie gets to this place, and we mm-hmm. don't yep. see how he officially leaves. Does he have a car? Did he take, there's no like train station. Like there's well, no, air, there's probably not an airport right in town. Did he take a bus? Does he have a car? Yeah. yeah. You, you don't oh, really yeah. see. Did he walk? Yeah. That walking scene in the beginning, which uh, almost, you could almost read that as like he walked into this town, but I don't think that's how you're supposed to, unless it is. Um, but you don't see how he, um, gets there. He's never seen driving a car in this movie, which is weird because it's a. I guess you could call this an action movie, right? Yeah, I mean the scenes of it that are action scenes are an action movie. I'd say it's it's an action movie in the same way something like Drive is an action movie, where it's the the supercharged moments of it that are the spike from the tone of the rest of it are absolutely action, and we can talk about like the choreography of that later. But so so this is this is an action movie with a with that takes place in the seventies, came out in in nineteen seventy, mm-hmm. 
and the main action dude doesn't drive a car. Yeah, huh. Yeah, he doesn't have a cool muscle car. He doesn't have That's a cool so anything. Weird. That's so That was so weird for the genre. That's weird for the genre now. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I'm trying, to think of, I'm trying to think of action movies where male leads don't drive cars. Oh, God. Uh... On Wick? His car's destroyed, and that's what starts kind of starts the movie, along with a very unfortunate puppy death. Mm-hmm. I've I've only seen the first one. Does he not get a car in either of the sequels? Um, I think he drives cars at some point, but it's not really his car. So I guess he right. does drive cars. You should also definitely watch those other two movies. They're pretty fantastic. I I've heard that. I know I'm terrible at watching movies. You know that about me. It's a miracle yes, I've seen all eight of these. <laughs> um, I do know that you're terrible at seeing movies. Uh, John Wick's really good, though. Second, uh, John Wick has lots of cool stuff. Mad Max has a lot of cars in it, but there isn't really a car that is Max's. He has one at the very... Or Fury Road, I'm thinking about specifically. He has one at the very beginning that immediately gets taken from him before the opening title screen even rolls across. Yeah, but ca- but vehicles in general are so important to that universe. Yeah. It almost feels like, it, 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 it almost feels like a cop-out. Yeah. Uh, now... I, I think, well, I mean, now, now I'm thinking of, like, like kind of camp um, action flicks. Now, now I'm like thinking about John Carpenter. I, I I mean, Big Trouble in Little China, he's got his fucking truck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just, I, I do think they drive vehicles in, like, Escape from New York, but regardless. Yeah. Pla- um, no, that's not an action movie. I was, <laughs> I was about to say Planet of the Apes, which is super not an action movie. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you know, I, I guess Indiana Jones doesn't really have a car that's his car. He has whatever vehicle gets him out to whatever ruins he's seeing, and then yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, we never see how he gets yeah. to this town, and we watch him leave, but we don't really watch how he leaves. And there's the, yeah. the, so there's this I, this weird feeling of liminalness to this town and and the very strange things that go on here and his very odd relationship with his sister, which which drives the first half hour of this movie and makes it feel like it's going to be a very different movie than it ends up being. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, so ambiguity is such a. There are so many movies and so many directors and so many writers who will overtell, right? Who will tell more than they show. The ambiguity in their relationship in that first half hour and the way they talk to each other. I have read people argue that, you know, that there is a very dark history between them. That maybe there's some dialogue that implies that he either, depending on how you read it, saved her from sexual assault or sexually assaulted her. Like, th- mm. there's there's some very rough subtext that could be taken a lot of different ways. Then there's stuff about him asking about her boyfriend and her talking about why they broke up in these very strange terms that could be taken as either an abusive situation she got out of or an abusive situation she created or something completely unrelated to that, like a revelation about herself. There are, uh, I think, I remember you and I talking about this in college. There are gender, there, there were like gender studies majors we both knew who would write about these, the, the argument that she is saying, oh, I ran off from him because I realized I was a lesbian. And, and, and you know. That that is a space I am not comfortable enough to try and navigate and give a verdict on. But I think it's a really interesting take. And this is all very rough stuff what we're talking about here, but it's all part of the way these two people communicate. They have 
Um, they have two. They have two major conversations, right? They meet because they meet in the parking lot. They meet in the <laughs> big supermarket parking lot that is cinematically empty, apart from a couple other vehicles. Yeah. Uh, again, we don't see if he has a vehicle parked there. He just walks in to get himself, you know, s- some basic essentials to bring to the seedy motel he's hanging out at, oh. uh, and she's coming out with groceries. And I, I love the wide shot. He's coming out with his bag that has like, uh, I don't know, l- l- like band-aids and a bottle of Col- Colt 45 and like a, a sandwich. <laughs> and then she's coming out with her four bags of groceries. Uh-huh. And they just look at each other from across this wide parking lot with all this space between them. And the camera just milks every ounce of that distance between them. Yes, and the the weird color saturation where it's this it, it's not it, it's not quite sepia like it, but you almost like feel the colors changing in this in this scene while these two people just kind of have an oh you're here moment. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. I, I think I think that the the part of dialogue and human interaction that that Laz Patillo really has a talent for tapping into is how people talk about things by talking about other things. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. And, and how especially that comes out when you're dealing with family. Um, because there's a lot of, I, I find there, there's a lot of things that you, that you can't really talk about with, your family because there's you know boundaries there but there's a lot there's there are still ways you can communicate those things to your family without talking about them and you have years and years of history and interpersonal codes that um that help you build that and in these two major interactions that these two characters have you can feel that history you can feel all the things that aren't being said between them but they're just not being said verbally like these two people know exactly what they're talking about even if you don't yeah absolutely it comes out in conversations like um oh god they're they're this is in the in the later the second major conversation they have but like this they have the whole conversation where where you know she candidly asks you know oh what was it? What was it? Oh, oh, you're you're still wear you're still wearing that jacket. Mom always mom always used to say that jacket made you look too soft. And then his response is, "Do you feel like it makes me look too soft?" And she just sort of looks at him and goes, "Mom always did." And you don't know if that means I do because mom always did, or if that uh, meant you know yeah. mom always did. And I think she's a piece of like, like or, or or if that means that she's trying to call him out on some deeper behavior that she thinks is too soft. Like I I, I don't know if if masculinity is the number one issue this film series tackles, but it's definitely one on Laz's mind. And I've always, I've always read that as like her going, her maybe just asking her brother if he cares, if he cares about coming off as too soft to people. I, and I've always wondered like what it was like to watch this movie in a theater, not really knowing that it was going to be part of a series because this, Mm -hmm. this movie, when it came out, it wasn't like, you know, part one of the Marmoset Chronicles wasn't something that you could market a movie on when the Marmoset Chronicles didn't exist yet. So this really had to sort this movie really had to sort of carry itself. So this like interpersonal drama builds and you really think that this is what the movie's gonna be about. This is like a reconnecting with your family movie. 
Right. And then there is this sudden violent turn um, at the 30 minute mark. And all yeah. of a sudden you are watching a very different movie. God, absolutely. One, one just, I mean, I mean, yeah. One where, okay. So do we want, I guess we should get to that. The fact that she is killed in the same parking lot, we see them make that first interaction. In. And yes. now what a director could do that Laz doesn't do is a director could have made it ambiguous who killed her. It could have been a scene of her walking back and getting groceries on a different day and someone making a sound from off screen that makes her turn and look. And then, you know, a cuts scream the as the, what? Yeah. A, a scream as the video cuts to the sky, what, whatever. But that's not what happens here. Like, like, like what I mean is Laz could have done that to sh- to create a question of, Oh, did Georgie kill her? Uh, or yeah. just not knowing. We see Paul come up behind her as she's loading groceries. Uh, and, you know, it's not even that dark out. But again, it's this parking lot with all these really wide shots. So, you know, what, whether or not there's another car in the lot, you know, just by visual cue that it is conveying emptiness and the lack of anyone else there. As Paul comes up behind her and slits her throat and we see blood spatter all over the loaf of bread and whatever else in her in the yeah. trunk of her car. Like... It is so stark. It is so just screaming at you that this is what you're watching now. Yeah. And yeah, it is It is extremely, it is like you're watching a different movie it, yeah. in a way that I think is beautifully effective that just punches you and lets you know that you're not in control as the viewer. Yeah. And obviously you never are when you're watching a movie, but I think <laughs> the degree to which this makes you feel suddenly helpless as yeah. a viewer is so fucking powerful and i i love that you can trace back like on rewatches you can you can trace back and see the paul character in the background in every other scene they share he yeah he, yeah, he's, he's just he's a member of this community he he is mm-hmm. a person who exists in this town and I like that, at least in this movie, we don't really see why this man is like this. Why this antagonist is just so angry. And and angry at everyone and everything in the world. And that that we we don't really find out why why he kills Jessica. Yeah, no, we really don't. And and and, and you know, we we, we find out it's implied later on that it's not his first killing, but like, yeah, he never, he never gives a speech with a motive. You never find out, Oh, he was, you know, he went through this thing when he was young. And so now he's taking things out on anyone or he feels unloved. No, it's almost like, I, I guess it doesn't matter is, is Patillo's take. And I, I and that makes sense. Like it's the very, irrelevant, uh, mm-hmm. very kind of uh, Joker esque take on a villain. Like, you don't. You don't need a well. Uh, th- you know, in the year twenty twenty, I, I actually can't say that you don't need a backstory for the Joker. I was, was awesome. going to ask if you meant the the more recent movie or the traditional take no, on the Joker. I'm, I'm, okay, I mean like 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 nineties era comic Joker. Yeah, like, yeah. Why is this man doing this? Because that's what he does. Yep. Because because he is evil. Yeah, well, and also because the anonymity and the joyful chaos of what he does makes him a really fitting counterpart to Batman. And that's, you know, 
something that a lot of a lot of those movies and comics have explored in different ways. Like the Nolan movies oh. do it really well. A lot of comics do it really well. Um, and that there's not quite that that contrast here uh, between between Georgie and Paul. We don't get quite a. Uh, we don't get the kind of the kind of like order versus chaos. Like I'm doing this because I like it versus I'm doing this out of a sense of duty, which is mm-hmm. what we get with Batman and the Joker. You're right. Um, that's yeah. That's not yeah. Um, I, I I think I think there is an interesting contrast between them, right? Because Georgie is. I, I feel like they are both cast as interlopers, but like uh-huh. one one is an interloper who. Where, or at least in this movie, I think you know Georgie is not always an interloper. We see him go to his family and different ones. We see him fall in love. We see all these sides of him. But in this movie, he is very much an interloper. Like you know, like you said, we don't know how he arrives in or leaves that town. He is a wanderer. He, for the purpose of this movie, this text, he is absolutely a wanderer who uh-huh. wanders into a town where it turns out someone he knows is, and he gets wrapped up in stuff. But he is an interloper and wears that on his sleeve. He never lies and tells anyone that he lives in the town when he doesn't you know he he's just passing through and he'll tell you he's just passing through he does at several points tell you that he's just passing through but but no then then you have this guy you have paul who like you said is is a member of this community he's a uh, you know he is he is a phantom in the community he is he's almost a different kind of interloper because he's one within a space that he's been accepted part of i i think one very common reading of you know why he kills is like a frustration with that. Like feeling like he's become too much part of one community and it's kind of melted into it. Um, And you see that in little places, like when he, you know, there's one scene you don't, you don't see him interact directly with a ton of other uh, people in the community, but so we have this diner, right? It's, It's where, you know, Georgie and Jessica have their second conversation. And it's also where Georgie and, Paul have a, a conversation into an altercation later in the movie. And when, when we're there with, with Paul there, we see him like try to start a friendly conversation with the waitress that just sort of doesn't happen. Uh-huh. And it's those very little, it's very quick. It's those little things like that. that I've seen a lot of people argue towards being, being why he acts the way he acts, why he is acting out and killing people is just like this feeling that, this dissatisfaction with just sinking into being a part of a place. Yeah. Um, I also think that, you know, you do need to take the context into the, con- like the, the greater meta context into um, consideration here, because this is, this is 1970. We are coming off of the, a decade that, you know, defined itself by pushing back against conformity. And, you know, this, this takes place in, in the Midwest, like very, explicitly in in a small midwestern american town so this idea that like essentially conformity drove him crazy and then he started killing people is definitely i i think that's that's there and i think that's a very valid reading of his motives i also think that it, it it makes it very interesting to put him up against georgie who's not so much a non-conformist as that he's never really had a place to conform to right and even then that fact is not something we really like like you can you can derive that fact in that movie and it becomes more clear in the sequels but yeah it's even then subtly placed that he is in that position where he doesn't have anywhere else to go to it's in those little dialogue bits to jessica before she's she's killed and you know you can just sort of tell by the way he interacts with all the people in this town that 
he has passed through a lot of towns. Like you get the idea when he's having um that interaction with uh with the little kid on the bike, right? Like <laughs> yeah. gives him his gives him his like softball back or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell that like he's gone through this conversation a million times before with a million different people. And I don't think that even with even with meeting up with his sister, I don't think that sort of Okay, so there's okay, okay, so so follow follow me here for a minute. Go for it. So there's there's like boredom and a lack of purpose in conformity, but there's also boredom and and a lack of purpose in too much non-conformity. Sure. So it gets to a point where like you can be so non-conformist that you are re- still restricting yourself. Are you talking about non-conformist in terms of what you do and how you present yourself or in terms of the world around you and that lack of a place that Jordan has? You are so determined to never fit in within a place. If you are determined to never conform to anything and never sort of let yourself be part of a community, you are just as stuck and isolated as that person who is absolutely determined to fit in in every way. Hmm. Yeah. I... Hmm. Do you do you think do you think Georgie's determined not to? And this is this is a question that we can come back to. Or do you think that he feels helpless from it? Like I, I've I've often, or maybe those are two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. I, I've I've always wondered, and this is partly a question with the actor too, because I know like he and Patillo became very quick friends over uh, developing this character, right? I, uh, how much, at least just in the scope of this first movie, we don't have to talk about the other seven. How how much is he determined to avoid feeling like he belongs to a place? And how much does it just come down to him feeling adrift and lost and like he doesn't have that place to go to? I always I I take a lot of this this the arc of this whole movie series is about running and running away Definitely. and running towards and sort of the places that you stop when you're running. I do think that Georgie has I think a big part of Georgie's character is that he's made a noted effort through most of his life to not belong to some place. I think that it's very important that as soon as he makes that connection with his sister and that second conversation they have where it, it does seem like they're making progress. Yeah, totally. And and they laugh together during that, you know, they, yeah. they, they start to joke around a little bit. It, it feels like a reunion between siblings yeah. and the way that first altercation certainly does it. As soon as he starts getting comfortable, that's taken away from him. And then mm-hmm. the rest of the movie isn't about it. Well, it's about it's about a different it's about a connection between protagonist and antagonist. But it, it it's. It's about like the little connections he makes with the people around the town, but it stops being about recollection and reunion, and it becomes about revenge and um, totally justice and really, really awesome action set pieces. Oh my God, so good! The I, I mean, this is the stuff that's almost like we could just be like, yeah, yeah, and then they have some really incredible fights that have. You know, like, like, like we can just almost mock the fact that we're talking about that. But yeah, like the entire sequence on, on the on the rooftop of the uh, of the diner and then jumping to the next rooftop and then falling down into the alley. Like it 
it draws a it draws like a family circus dotted line through the town, you know, yeah. <laughs> in a way that really works. Oh, and it's incredible. And listen, there's a reason why a a book breaking down the fight scenes in in the first three movies of this series. Uh, breaking them down and, and explaining them and analyzing them. There's a reason that book was a New York Times bestseller for mm-hmm. three weeks in the 80s. Yep. Like, I, I mean, it's also because that book is really good. Have you read that book? I, I have. I was amazed that they got, uh, certainly not all, but some of the maps that Patillo drew. The, like, physical... And- I know what I just said about Family Circus, but that's kind of what those maps are a little bit. Is he would Like, did you see the scan of the one that's actually on a bar napkin? Really, really, it's really endearing. I love that book. Um, yeah, and, and like that one, that it's even then the one I, I just sorry, this is not even this is from the second movie, so we'll get to it. But like the one on the bar napkin is of a really complicated fight scene that is in a kind of small place, and he uses every inch of that single napkin to illustrate that space and Georgie's path through it in that movie, and that just speaks so much to how he how Patillo directs these sequences where when he's constructing these places, we're talking about places as characters. It's not just that they're characters. It's also that they are kind of, kind of bowling alleys. Like they're kind of set up with pins to be knocked down and things to be used so purposefully. And I love that. It's, it's, consistently such a visual tour de force and an absolute fucking delight in every one of these movies. But it's not quite, okay, but it's not it's not in a way that's annoying and obvious. Like, Mm -hmm. have you ever watched an action piece in a movie? I I feel like animation does this a lot, where like you'll walk into they'll walk into a uh, a room and there's a lot of pillars, for instance, and you're like oh, there's gonna be a fight scene and it's gonna use the pillars. I play video games. There's a lot of video games that do that, but their version is you walk into a room that has like a bunch of low walls that you could crouch behind to dodge bullets. And you're like, oh, this is going to be a big shootout fight. Video games are full of that. I I will be honest with you, Jay. Uh, For about 30 seconds there, I forgot video games existed. That must have been a fucking nice 30 seconds, gotta say. Sorry, continue. Now that you've gifted me with the knowledge and I now remember that video games exist. It's a bad time. While the set pieces have a lot of moving parts, it never feels like a boss fight setup. Sure, yeah. Like you never have a moment where where you're like, oh, okay, this is what this is. This is what this set piece is going to do. Because in that bar yeah. fight that you mentioned, again, we won't get too far into it because this is not that movie. Um, in that bar fight, you, you they they focus so much on like this wall of bottles, and you're like oh, it's going to be like a bottle bar fight. They're going to break the bottles and fight with them. That isn't what they fight with at all. No. <laughs> but let's not let's not get too sidetracked. Um, yeah, no, absolutely not. I, to sort of sort of move this, this along, I want to talk about sort of a weird thing to talk about with these movies and one of my most controversial movie takes in general. Because this, this has to do with these movies and also movies in general. Uh, okay, sure. So... I think these movies' lengths are all very, very important. The fact that they are all between 90 and 105 minutes, and they're never longer than that. Uh, I think the ideal length for a movie is 90 minutes. Um, So so did Mr. Laz Patillo. He vocally, vocally would talk about how much he hated a lot of movies that were way longer than that. Listen, I... I always feel bad, even if it's a good movie, giving two hours of my life to a movie. Right. 
90 minutes? I, I will give yeah. 90 minutes of my life to a movie, but but the the two two and a half hour movies, I I, I just I it, they always make me feel weird. But especially if it, if it's like you're in a theater and you have plans afterwards, and you need to make sure yeah. you have time things up for the plans afterwards. Like I literally did before we came to sit down and record because I was watching an anime movie in a movie theater earlier. <laughs> I bet I know exactly what anime movie you were watching because I think my uh I think my partner went to watch the same one. <laughs> yeah, probably was then. But any but but there are eight of these movies and. When, make no mistake, when Laz Patillo was making this movie, he knew there were going to be eight of these movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think it's very, it, it's important that if you're, if you're going to have eight of anything, you can't have them be that big. Yeah, definitely. So I mean, yeah. 90 minute, 90, 90, 100 minute movies. Get in, tell your story, get out. Pretty much. I mean. And I think that's an art that's being lost in the, the this, this, the and all the two hour movies that come out every day three hours sometimes i mean lord of the rings is this trilogy of three and a half hour epics you know like yeah absolutely there, there's something to be said for and i i think we're, we're finding an odd i don't know this is a whole other conversation but i, I think we're finding an odd middle ground with like miniseries on netflix or youtube that are mm-hmm. like in shorter bites that allow directors to tell shorter stories oh, but yeah, yeah I, I think in movies absolutely we're at like everything is two and a half hours long right now and wherever patillo is he's Probably real mad about it. <laughs> As he camps in the Latvian wilderness. Yeah, really. I assume Latvia has wilderness. I actually don't know <laughs> anything about Latvia. Not um, a single thing. Um, but I think that that 90 minutes is important. Um, and I, I guess as we continue moving through this, how... Because as we said in the first episode, our... Um, thesis statement for this for this whole exercise is what did these movies do for us? So mm-hmm. what was the biggest sort of lesson or impression that you took away from this movie? Oh boy. Um, so that's that's a different uh, answer depending on what part of my life it was. When I was a teenager, when I was in the AV club watching this movie for the first time, my, my takeaway was mostly that the fight the fight scenes were very cool. But honestly it's it, cool. It was a lot of that direction, right? Like what we were talking about, the mapping out of things. It it was one of the first movies that got me thinking about place in action scenes. And this is, you know, mm-hmm. if you want to talk about stuff that sucks with a lot of big movies today, it's how quickly so many big action movies will let a, like, city block disintegrate for the sake of a cool explosion. The thing is, Laz Patillo doesn't let a hair on a person's head be cut off if it is not for a precise purpose. Like, it is, and that is something you do sometimes see in good action movies. We were talking about John Wick. We were talking about Mad Max Fury Road. Those are movies where everything has a purpose within the system of what that director has built when it terms when it, when it comes to the action they are trying to create. Mm-hmm. When that that happens so well here, while never making you feel lost like um you know another thing is there's a lot of action movies where (laughs) a a combination of endless quick cuts and you know the need to have everything be full of spectacle kind of detracts from the importance of place of location these are all scenes where you know exactly where you are. You have a really physical sense of like, almost as if if I were in this situation, I would know that this bar is five steps to my left or that table uh-huh. over there with the 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 used steak knife on it is 
12 paces over that way. Yeah. It really, it lets you feel like you've lived in those spaces uh-huh. and then shows you atrocities and incredible action scenes happening in those spaces as if you are watching on the news that those things are happening in the town yeah. you live in. I, and that's fucking incredible. Yeah, and I, 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 oh, yeah. I love it. I think kind of building off that is this is the first movie that I watched where I was watching these fights and like wincing because I was thinking about what it must be like to clean up after it. (laughs) Yeah. Because you see, you see like, I think there's, you know, there's this, that, that really precise moment that everybody loves to pick apart where, where Georgie and Paul have left this diner. Like they're not there anymore. And you just have just a shot of the, the every, you know, pandemonium and panic and, you know, people hiding under tables and tables are flipped over and there's food and broken glass everywhere. And in the middle of it is just this, the the, the waitress who we've met a few times, just standing there looking around, like trying to put this room back together in her head. Um, And there aren't that many other movies that do that. Uh, One of the only other films I can remember watching that has given me a similar sense to that is, is Warriors. Have you ever seen that movie? I, not in a long time, but yes. But but yeah, no, part of, I think a big part of how you feel at the end of both of these movies is this really kind of oppressive sense that there is a mess now that needs to be cleaned up and you're mm. not going to get the catharsis of watching that happen. You know what does that for me is the end of Taxi Driver when it's that just long shot of police arriving after the, the after everything that happens at the fucking end of Taxi Driver and you just think about what they're about to walk in and see and have to clean up. Well, and yeah, and I think a a, a big part of why we like to see destruction in movies is that we get to sort of we get the catharsis of seeing it fixed often in a much easier way than in reality, but we don't get that in this movie. And I think that 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 also sets up the momentum for the rest of the movie because for the rest of these movies, because Georgie makes a lot of messes. Yeah. Yeah. Not on purpose a lot of the time, but he, he's a kind of a arrives in places like a tornado and leaves them in similar ways. And Mm. Very, very rarely do we get the catharsis of seeing him fix his mistakes. Yeah, right. To to the point where when he does too much, there have been points where fans have almost argued that it's out of character for him to be doing it. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, and then this whole movie, this whole, like, last big chase fight scene it ends with that that quote that you gave at the beginning. And then what we think is another murder, speaking of ambiguity, in a, in a, in a complete flip of Jessica's murder, we don't see what happens to Paul. No, yeah, we don't. And um, we barely even hear it. We, we, we are like, b- back to the Jessica thing. Not only do we see her murder, the ADR on that is so fucking guttural like i that's the other thing i remember this movie for is being one of the first movies that made me feel like you know it's one thing to be watching uh alien or a monster movie and seeing whoa this alien's fucking someone up it's gross and another thing to really like intimately hear the sounds of someone dying as if you are in the room with them or in the parking lot with them in that case and the audio direction is so fucking visceral in, oh, yeah. in that. And the it's fact awesome. that the audio continues on as the visual cuts to Georgie waking up in his hotel room. Um, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, it's it's 
as if it has haunted him like a bad dream that he is just being aware he's had. Like it's how many how many uh how many movies have taken that shot since? Oh fuck. <laughs> oh, um, I, if I if I had a dollar, if I had a nickel, um but we don't yeah. see what happens to Paul and you know that becomes important later. But um and then and then we just kind of get you get the, this this shot of him of Georgie standing up and you know he's got a nosebleed and behind him yeah. you just see this pandemonium that this town has become and you know faraway police sirens and then you get that shot of his shoes again and as he like kind of takes a couple false steps and then he just kind of starts power walking out of town yeah yeah and uh as he does so what's it, there's such an interesting effect where the, the sky behind him, what little you see of it, does a similar color change to what it does when he and Jessica first lock eyes, and it's it, it almost reverts back to like like it, it it almost feels like a magic is not a magic a a something maybe a magic not in the good sense but in the neutral power sense is leaving with him and the town is returning to whatever it was before he arrived and you know honestly that's not gonna be the same because a man was killed a man who was murdering people in the town was killed but yeah it's just such an interesting effect i i yeah Mm -hmm. i'm a big fan of the way of the way this movie opens and closes you don't need to think about what exists outside that town for him or anyone else yet it's just Town doesn't even have a fucking name. They never name the town. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a town where a lot of people are dead by the end of it. And because yeah. Paul kills a lot of people. Yes, he does. It's it's a quickening once uh once Georgie is onto him. And, um can um, I can I ask I oh no, go ahead. Oh yeah, and I think that, that like I think that trauma of all those bodies does fuel the next few movies for Georgie. Definitely. But go absolutely you, you tell me what you're about to say. So obviously this is the most fans arguing on a message board question on earth. Um, The Phantom and the Red. The Phantom is Paul. That part's pretty clear. Or even if you want to expand that to say that the Phantom could be either Paul or Georgie. We just, you and I talked about that, about why, like, you know, the ways in which they're both. Yeah. Um, Who is the Ren, do you think? Because I know this is, this is an argument that frequently hits. It's not an argument. I'm right. Jessica's the Ren. Yeah, and that makes sense. I, I I think that that makes the most sense. I think there's also the case that like the Ren could be just the accumulation of Paul's victims throughout the movie. I think there's also the argument that the Ren is Georgie, which I don't really agree with. But people who think the Ren the Ren is Georgie, uh, I think severely misunderstand the motifs in the movies in general. Oh, um, yeah, because uh, Georgie does get an animal motif as this as these movies go on, and they're certainly not birds. No, that's certainly oh. not. I, I think I think if it existed in a vacuum, you could make the argument just because like oh, b- birds fly wherever they want, and Georgie flies in and out of the movie like a bird. Like you could you could get something there, you know. But yeah, I, I don't think it's super strong. I think Jessica makes a lot more sense because I, I th- there's the ethereal nature. There's the, the, the I don't know. I, I I also think that um, and this is sort of a this is this is a like a half a cop out answer. I think this oh, movie Lord. is called The Phantom and the Wren, uh, in a large part because it sounds cool. Sure. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> The same way where like like sometimes sometimes things happen because they just sound cool. Yeah, but, I mean, 
cool title. I, 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 yeah, I, no, I'm, I'm, I've always loved like Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince is only called that because Snape gave himself a cool, edgy nickname in high school. Uh, like, like uh, no, I think that if you told me like the reason this is called the Phantom in the Red is because this is something that Patillo had written down in, in a notebook for four years <laughs> yeah. and just thought, thought it sounded cool and was trying to think of a way to a uh, place to put it. Um, and that's the reason you know people who may or may not include me have been or arguing on message boards about who's the phantom and who's the ren for like 40 years uh yeah i i think that um i i think it could it could also just be cool and laz is a troll we all know i mean that's just back to last is just a troll but well uh, yeah i mean i mean to the point where like in interviews in, in the um so in in the in the making of stuff that was on the vhs of this movie that i watched when i was a teen uh he gave an interview where his answer was paul is the phantom and the Wren is the town. Or no, I'm sorry. Yeah, Paul is the Phantom and the Wren is the rest of the town. He gave another interview around the same time where he said Georgie was the Phantom and Paul was the Wren. Uh, he had another I one where- I hate where that. He, I'm so mad. Yeah. I oh, I know. He, he had another one where he said the Wren was the fucking waitress in the diner. I'm he doesn't so give mad. a shit if you know the answer. I believe that he probably has one because he's a good writer and director, but he doesn't give a fuck oh. if you know what it is. He drives me insane. I'm so mad about yeah. it. But, huh, okay. Do we have any kind of closing remarks or other, uh. other things we can think of about this movie? Um, I mean, it's always interesting to look at it as the first of a director's real career and of an eight part series and like mm -hmm. think about the ways in which the direction and action scenes and dialogue in this evolve in terms of quality and how Patillo changes as a person over the course of oh. things. Um, earlier, you mentioned the fact that he does have a plan. I, I always do kind of wonder if that plan changed in ways like if there are things he intended to go a certain way later on when he made this movie mm -hmm. that then were changed later on. And that's an open-ended thing, obviously, but like, that's a thought I have, I guess. I don't know. I always, I always find it. I don't want to get too much into this because we could go on about it for, for hours, but it, it's always so interesting when people are writing and they think they have a certain timeline and then that timeline changes. Yeah. Um, so all of a sudden <laughs> they're like scrapping things that they thought they wouldn't because so, so all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, we have another two seasons. Oh God, we need to explain this. Or <laughs> Kirsten, is this a call out post? <laughs> Cause I do this so fucking often in my own writing and just my own planning and writing. <laughs> I, I didn't uh i think everyone does this i know yeah, we all do i think it's um not super often that you can see it i do think that there are some things in this movie that laz wanted to explore more and then you know he got to a certain point he's like i'm bored of it i don't want to explore i don't want to explore this anymore or, yeah um something that he thought was going to be important and then he either forgot about it or just kind of dropped it mm-hmm but I don't think that takes or like, away or, yeah. from this movie. I don't think it takes away from how good it is and how not at all. Oh, and the, just oh, it's so it's it's good. It's a good movie. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. If you haven't seen it, why are you listening to this? Um, <laughs> can you imagine? God, what is so? The one person in the world who hasn't watched these movies is sitting down and listening to our our podcast <laughs> retrospective on it. Not like yep. NPR's ours. No, not not NPR's. Not the uh, the AV Club series on it. Not anything else. Red Letter Media ours. <laughs> what is no. that person thinking right now? No, God, yeah. Well, one day, uh, 
Have you heard the rumors that one day Ken Burns is going to make a documentary on these movies if he can get Laz Patillo to talk to him? No. That that's I that's a supposed thing that he's always had on the back burner. Is is that if he could ever get Laz Patillo to talk to him, he would want to make a what documentary on the Marmoset Chronicles? Yeah. Don't do this to me. Don't tell me about this thing that will never exist because it never will. Laz Patillo hates people. Oh. Uh. All right. Also, but also, if you wear those shoes that Georgie has in this movie, those weird custom chucks, if you have a pair of those, you're a loser. You're a loser and a dork. You're a huge dork. But however, go see these movies. And that's, uh, that's kind of- Go see these my, movies. That's, go watch them again. That's, that's my last thought. All right. Uh, Kirsten, do you have anything you want to plug as we close things? Close things out here. Excuse me. Um, right now, one of the easiest way- place to find me on social media is Instagram at Kirsten Meehan Writes. Uh, I'm still working on getting other social media platforms up and running. I'm considering coming back to Twitter, but we'll see what happens. What about you, Jay? <laughs> if you do, you can find me at Extreme Salsing. If you follow me, it'll be a lot of hot takes on things don't matter, and and I've I. I I tweet all the time and I couldn't even tell you what I tweet about. So you're going to have to go and find out. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube at uh, Hi, I'm Jay. I do a series about licensed video games that may or may not have hidden art in them called The Longest Licensed Voyage and other video essay stuff. I might actually start doing some film stuff on there to uh, separate from all this. I've had some ideas that I want to explore at some point. So there's that. That's exciting. Also, don't forget that we are on the Orange Groves Podcast Network, uh, home to incredible shows like Argonauts. Um, Summer Twilight Book Club is one I feel like you might enjoy if you enjoy this. Nervous Rex is another one. Uh, how do we end this? <laughs> um, ha, same way Georgie ends this movie. By <laughs> scuffing his shoes, not looking at the carnage he's leaving behind, and getting out of town. Walking right along into whatever is next for him. And uh, we will see you next week. Next, say, same Marmoset time, same Marmoset channel. Did I make that joke already? I think <laughs> Did I you make that joke already? Yes. Where uh, we will we will talk, we'll be talking about the uh, the second, the second uh, um, movie in this series, Obstacle Corps. Yep. You know, we'll, we'll talk about the naming conventions of this series as it goes on. But yep, right. I am excited to talk about Obstacle Core. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. blood-sucking babes. I'm Sahana. And I'm Kat. And we're the hosts of Summer Twilight Book Club, a podcast where two dumb bitches with social work degrees reread the four horniest books of their teenage years. If you're at all curious about any of the following, this is the podcast for you. Does Bella Swan have a car crash fetish? Yes, I am telling you right now the answer is yes. 
Does Stephanie Meyer understand healthy relationship boundaries? Has Bella Swan ever had a secure attachment in her life? How has Twilight impacted the societal and my personal conceptions of romance? Why does Stephanie Meyer owe Sahana and all other brown people reparations? Why is Edward Cullen so into edging? You can find Summer Twilight Book Club at theorangegirls.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you access podcasts to find out.